And isn't it such a blessing to experience all this beautiful music and to be moved by it in this beautiful place? Aren't the decorations in here amazing? I especially love, and you can't miss it, right, the sign here, joy. I can remember towards the end of November really trying to think hard about what would I talk about today, what would the theme be, and then we came here and, and uh, helped put up the decorations, and then the team that stayed here and worked much harder than the rest of us kept, kept doing it, and I finally saw the decorations finished, and I thought, maybe I should say a little something about joy. Seems like God was sending me a sign, <laughs> literally. And I love how it's not just this tiny little sign, but it's massive. You know, that was custom made by our decorators. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And it is so fitting that it is this humongous sign because when the angel appeared to the shepherds the night of Jesus' birth and said... I bring you good, no, good news of what? Great joy. The word for great, many of you may already know in the Greek is megas. This is not your run-of-the-mill, ordinary kind of joy. It's mega joy. But for some, maybe for many of us, joy can be hard to find this time of year let alone the mega kind. Came across an article in Christianity Today by a pastor named Zach Eswine who was sharing how his grandmother passed away on Christmas Day the previous year. He shared, it was a Christmas of lights and hospice, candy canes and catheters, new gifts and last words. During a season that was supposed to be holly and jolly, our family was grieving. And then he goes on to share in the article a warning for pastors. He said, preachers can often be tempted to talk naively at Christmas. Naive Christmas preaching has in mind our motivation to keep the foot tapping and the mouth smiling. Rather than weeping with those who weep, a naive talker tries to rejoice with those who cry. We resist frowns by poking them with jokes. Naive sermons rob us of our tears by giddily forcing everything to remain bright. Many preachers, he continues, will remember as children the sleepless marvel of nights before Christmas, but by now we are old enough to know the hidden pains of adult life. Grandchildren play among the toys while Alka-Seltzer fizzes in the glass. Silent night gets sung by family members who don't talk to each other. Lights twinkle on the tree while souls flicker into burnout. And sometimes on Christmas Day, nanas die. But it's still so tempting, he says, to preach naively at Christmas. After all, who wants a sad sermon to listen to around the Christmas season? A yuletide meditation on gloom. Well, the last thing, family, that I want to do today is give you a naive Christmas message. I know that for some, maybe for many, this is not the most wonderful, but maybe the most hurtful and anxious time of the year. 
So I won't try to force you to keep your foot tapping or mouth smiling. But the other last thing I want to do is give you some kind of yuletide meditation on gloom. Don't want to do that either. I think my job today is to do what Pastor Eric also suggested in his article and simply tell you that it was precisely for those in gloom that Jesus came. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone, prophet Isaiah says. Have you noticed how the story of Jesus' birth includes rather than removes dark details? Like in Luke's account, right in the very first verse of chapter 2, we read, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus reminding us how Joseph and Mary and Jesus live as a minority people occupied by the Roman government. They have little to no political voice or power. That is the backdrop of the story. And then we go to verse 7, and and the more familiar detail that has been so creatively described several times in our worship today, there is no place for them in the inn. They are shown no personal favor in the world. They will give birth in a way that would frighten most of our modern Western sensibilities. No doctor, hospital, or doula. No living room, pool, or bath in your home. There is nothing romantic and warm about a manger. Swaddling clothes in the cold night could bring on pneumonia and cough. And then in verse 8, we read, The angels bring the message of great joy to shepherds out in the field. These are bone and muscle, third shift, blue-collar workers. God bless them, but that's a tough life. And let's be honest, these were not people back then that the world would have been looking to for culture-making. And then we read over in Matthew's gospel, even before we get to the birth of Jesus, we've got the whole genealogy that reminds us of all the baggage that's in Jesus's family tree. And then in verse 13 of Matthew chapter two, it says, not long after being lavished with the gifts from the three wise men, an angel appears to Joseph and says, hey, you gotta take your child and and your wife and you gotta get out of here. Herod is gonna try to kill your baby. And so we see Jesus' family having to flee like refugees, leaving all they know, including nearly all their possessions for asylum in a neighboring country. And then a few verses later, it describes how Herod is furious by being tricked by the wise men and orders that all the boys under two in Bethlehem and in its vicinity be executed. No one, not even God, will stop this. And the words of the prophet Jeremiah will unfortunately come to pass. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And then going back to Luke's account, we read how the wise men had to return to their country by another route. The shepherds also return. Return to what, I wonder? Will their circumstances change? The Magi go back to a life living as a faith minority. The shepherds go back to working that grueling third shift. They will live through Herod's crimes against children, the corrupt collaboration of church and state, the death of John the Baptist, and if they live long enough, they will even see or hear that the Messiah they visited at at birth is executed. Even towards the end where we have that beautiful song of praise from Simeon, he follows that by saying Jesus' coming is going to bring rising and falling of many in the nation. 
and that the opposition that produces will be so devastating, it will pierce the soul of his mother like a sword. The promised Messiah has come, and yet swords remain and soul ache continues. Jesus' birth includes rather than removes the dark details. But the good news of great joy is that in the midst of all that darkness, light has come. Unto us, us in all our mess and distress, a Savior is born. The Messiah, the Lord, is Emmanuel, God with us. You see, family, joy is not a trite thing. For true joy to exist, it must possess the guts to go head to head with what threatens it. And there isn't anything gutsier than the joy of the Lord. For some of you, I know Christmas time rouses little joy, not because you don't want it to, but because you've known the kinds of pain that crush it. I hope you find encouragement this morning knowing you are not alone. Every fellow friend in the Christmas story that we read about, whether it was Simeon or Mary or Joseph, the shepherds or the magi, the oppressed under Herod, all the oppressed under Rome, even Jesus himself, they all experienced what it meant to encounter joy-crushing evils and pains. Their joy, however, found anchor in deeper places, and so can yours. Not tritely, but truly. This morning, I encourage you to let their lives become to you as a guide and friend for your own sufferings and remind you that the greatest joy this Christmas isn't the absence of your wounds, but the presence of Jesus in your life. Our Savior's birth may not relieve you of every tear today, but his birth makes it so that those tears don't get to have the last word. And that is good news that will bring you great joy. Would you please stand as we say prayer together and remain standing as we sing after the prayer. Lord, may all praise be given you for coming to our alienated world and building a bridge between your heaven and our earth for entering our sinful lives with your transforming influence so that we may have the power to love God and to love one another, for completely pardoning our sins so that they are no longer remembered by you and need not be remembered by us, for your persistent love, your generous grace, and your permanent peace, we give you thanks. And to you, O Lord, we give all honor and glory and majesty forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen.